it was a plan for me when I was 17, actually, to set up my own business at 50. I'm 17 and I'm just joining the RF myself. That was one of the edicts of my dad. You can do whatever you like and you can join any of the forces you want, to, but you are joining one of them. I always had a perspective that I never looked down. I was always looking up. So when I'm stopped by the police, I'm not talking the way they're expecting me to talk. And then you'd be made to kneel down and be frisked at, you know, eight, nine, ten, and all of those kind of things. So I learned a lot to deal with the power and the responsibility of having your own power and exerting that power, which I still carry to this day. So I read a book that was pivotal, I suppose, which was Richard Branson's biography. That point was the fact that he created a brand that he could put on anything. And the brand was synonymous with him. Started in the call center in the BBC. They had no idea. They obviously hadn't looked at my CV. They realized I knew what I was doing and knew what I was talking about. So I was offered some senior roles at the BBC. So you have to be portable. Your confidence and your capability has to travel with you. Every opportunity I had had to build credentials. Now you've got a family, a couple of kids, lots of responsibilities. And then you are coming up to your 50th birthday and you decide to walk away from all of that. And welcome to Everyday Leadership, a podcast where you get to listen and learn how to lead yourself personally and professionally through the lessons and life experiences my guests share in the hope that it challenges and inspires you to lead yourself from the inside out and not the outside in. Welcome to Everyday Leadership. Today, I have someone who I have been watching for a while from afar. Someone who is a CEO and runs an amazing organization called Ten, who are basically disruptors. They're focused on disrupting the ecosystem and building impactful businesses and serving the underserved, the excluded, recognizing the forgotten, and doing something which is going to make a change now, but also very, very future focused, recognizing that he might not actually see those changes land, but he can definitely plant those seeds for the future. So as you can imagine, this, this is going to be a dope conversation and so on that I know you're going to learn a lot from. Alex Cole, it is an absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast this morning. Good morning, Sophia, and very nice to be here. It's a real, actually, it's a privilege, I have to say. So I've, I've seen some of the people you've interviewed. I, I, re, I regard this opportunity to, to speak to you and to speak to others uh, on, your, on Everyday Leadership as a fantastic uh, privilege. So thank you. Thank you for the invitation. No problem at all. And how do you like to, I guess, be introduced? How do you like to talk about yourself when someone's... This is Alex Cole. What do you say? I'm curious. <laughs> that's a, that's a great question, actually. Uh, I think I think the way I talk about myself and, and I introduce myself is very much grounded in my um, in my family or my status in in my life before my professional uh, credentials. I, I see myself as a father, a grandfather of an, of children. Um, and somebody and a brother and um, a, 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 somebody who's from a very grounded family. So I talk about myself in those terms. Um, but then I then talk about my purpose next rather than and then I talk about my company. So I introduce myself as somebody as a disruptor, as somebody who's 
who's driven by the fact that my family, you know, I'm a father and grandfather. I, I have to feel that I can do something to impact the future for them in a way that is, um, is quantifiable and viable for them, uh, as, and that's my purpose. And so every, my business that I created and it's in its kind of third iteration now, um, you know, I came from me deciding that my professional career in a corporate setting, um, had taken me as far as it could. Um, it was a plan for me when I was 17, actually, to set up my own business at 50, which I did. So I actually literally left my, um, left my job, uh, when I was 50 years old, uh, everybody was shocked. It wasn't quite plop like, but, uh, but their shock was there. Um, and, uh, yeah, so I describe myself as a, an innovator, a, a disruptor, um, driven by purpose, um, to make the future better for my for my children, my grandchildren. And at 17, to leave, your, to leave corporate at 50, which you did. Before I even jump into that world, well, like, I am, I am curious. If I go way back even younger to eight-year-old Alex, you are, which I know people look at you right now, they're like, they're going to be shocked when I say this, but you're a child of the 60s. And I know you don't look, you don't look it at all, but you're a child of the 60s. Thank you. So, bro. Yeah. eight-year-old Alex what was, what was what was that like for you who were you then yeah I'll tell you where I was and then I'll get so that will give you some context um so eight-year-old Alex was living in Oxfordshire um my dad was in the RAF um so I grew up around RAF bases I we re recently just returned uh, my first school was in Singapore so I went to five years old I was in Singapore so we'd only just come back um from a three-year um, stint um, in because that's how long the postings were overseas. So uh, uh, that three years. So we were just returned recently. Registered. Well, for me as a child, it felt like forever. But uh, at eight, I was. We were living in a leafy suburb. Um, my uh, in a in a routine. I was going to uh, to my I think my third school <laughs> at that time. Um, so I was well traveled, well seasoned at eight. So um, and so that was my my perspective at that time um lots of things were going on um uh, and quite seismic things at the time i remember um the godfather movies the uh, movie had just come out uh, recently um and i wasn't supposed to watch it but i did anyway um and uh, it will tell you a little bit about me as a child so i was a disruptor even then uh but uh yes big events were being talked about uh, the assassination of JFK and Martin Luther King and Malcolm X. I was very much into um, my Jamaican um, and West Indian heritage because that's how we grew up. That was my foundation. So um, this was these were the discussions around the table, the dinner table, and the conversations were rich for me in, in opportunities to learn. And I was a questioner. You know, we talked about that a little bit. Um, I was the type of child that just was insatiable for, for knowledge. And I would sit with my grandmother and, you know, older aunts and uncles and just, just listen to them, uh, for hours and hours, um, just download as they downloaded. So yeah, that was eight year old me, very inquisitive, naughty, I think, and, and, and disruptive Had uh, had two other brothers, um, who I grew up with, um, an older brother, uh, and a younger brother. Um, separated by around a year and a half 
so we were just thick as thieves and we're out all the time playing and and getting into what into whatever mischief we could but but we were we were good children i think being a young a young child and traveling around the world like living in singapore for for three years coming back the jamaican route you just talked about and obviously um your grandma or siblings around you how did that influence and begin to shape your world even listening to some of those wisdom that your grandma your, and your aunt has poured into you and your environment because when i think about the 60s 70s all those different assassinations that you're talking about especially in the uk those times it was still hard. it was very very hard to be to be a black person it was very very hard in terms of the segregation around and the racism around and different things like that but you were uh not just a, a black person in the uk you were a very well traveled person as well so you already had another element to you so how was that like for you so i think you, you you've shaped it you know described it well so i have always had a perspective that never i never looked down i was always looking up and and what i mean by that is i you know so i was never I never felt stuck. I never felt like this reality that I was in, wherever we lived, that wasn't the end of the conversation. That was just the context I was in right now. So, and that got me into trouble, as you can imagine. So when I'm stopped by the police, um, I'm not talking the way they're expecting me to talk. They're asking me questions like, you know, where do you live and where are you going? And, and I'm asking them, um, why is that important to you? Why, why do you need to know that? Um, and, and I said, and I would say things at eight, like, um, you know, that's a philosophical question. And I had the, the language and the, and the vocabulary to do so because where I'm going is a big question I would ask. And they would say, oh, so we've got one of these and you could hear them saying, oh, so this is the smart one, one of these. So we're going to teach you a lesson and then you'd be made to kneel down and be frisked at, at you know eight nine ten and all of those kind of things but i recognize that power the dynamics of power were at play all the time and obviously being in these different countries you could see how that played out uh, and at nine um nine was a pivotal year we moved to jamaica so all of these conversations that i'd soaked up i was in it at nine like we moved um, because of my my dad uh, left the air force at that point um, and moved to Jamaica, so at that age, um, nine years old, I I landed in Kingston and in the air, at the airport it was boiling hot. I got off the. They told me it was hot, but I when their door opened and I I just literally every <laughs> I just started sweating immediately. So I lick you hard. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it hit me hard, boy. So I got off the plane. And I could smell this smell, and I was wondering, what is that smell? Because it was very alien, and but my dad had got a job with Air, Air Jamaica, so we we just breezed through customs as, as if we were VIPs. But I, the, the one thing I remember, and I remember it to this day, is that we went to the the immigration and the customs line. It was a short, a shorter line because I think he, he was in the staff line at that point, um, and. As we went to the, I gave my passport to the um, to the customs guy. He said, "Welcome home." I said, "Why?" I, I just it just blew me away. I said, "I've never heard that," and I, to this day, I've never come back to England. And they said, "Welcome home." <laughs> so it just felt like 
there were loads of questions. I'm coming home. Well, how does he know? What, what, what does he know that I don't know? And so, the, yeah, that 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 context that you talked about, which was I I was I was well traveled. I'd been around, uh, and we spent four years. I came back when I was thirteen. We moved back to Croydon, so I went from Oxfordshire to Croydon. So I'm in the in the <laughs> well, I'm in the, I'm in London. Let's put it that way, and I'm in a tough part of London. <laughs> That, that South you, London, yeah. Right, people will know Croydon now, uh, but and then it was it was a tough place to be, um, tough for all the reasons I've just described. This was where racism, and and that conversation with power, um, was a daily occurrence. You couldn't walk. I had to walk probably a mile to school, but it wasn't a bad walk. It was a it was a, an eventful walk. We could talk walk and talk with my 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 siblings and my and our friends, um, and we. We spoke about our weekends, we spoke about everything. So we had a nice, a good time to converse. So yeah, that was that was the context for me. This this worldview just traveled with me. It just gave me a perspective and a and an opportunity, I think, to to engage with people, which which did change the dynamic of conversations. Because of course when I came back from Jamaica, I had a Jamaican accent. Um you know, and a lot of people I realized that were talking Jamaican weren't really talking Jamaican. They were talking a, a pseudo Jamaican. So that was funny um, to hear people talking and thought, yeah, you, you're talking, are you singing songs that you don't know where trench tone is? You don't know where I've been there <laughs> and I've seen it. And then, so that, uh, as you say, it, I, I just had a, a different perspective on the world. Something that you've, you've said a number of times that I think it's a really important point. Being able to know and understand power dynamic is key to be able to navigate. And you've, you've touched on that, like even whether you're it's your eight-year-old self or even coming back from from Jamaica and seeing different things, you were you had that constant frame of reference around the power dynamics around you. And it sounds like that enabled you to be able to, I'm going to say, maneuver a lot better than other people because of that awareness you have from such a very young age. I think it's... Um... I suppose maneuver is the right word. Um, and what, so my dad was a very military man, as you can imagine. So, so we, you know, our household, the culture in our household was, you only speak once. So there was no repeating himself. He just, and you learned that pretty quickly. And so you paid attention to words. So if someone spoke to you, 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 I got very good and became very adept at, understanding the tone the, the 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 meaning behind words so when other people who tried to exert the same control over me and power over me that my parents did um i would listen to their tone their words and decide as you said i was adept at playing at maneuvering whether i was it was useful to me to go along to push back based on what kind of future, what kind of future relationship I wanted to have. So think of instant relationships where you're going into a shopping center, a security guard tells you you can't go come in. So I, I would definitely push back at that. I would take his words and dismantle them in front of him. And, and when he gave me a reason, I would just dismantle it. And said, well, that, you know, and as you're watching people, other people go in with and you're being stopped. I'm this man, why, so why would you stop us? What made you come over to us? And the only reason could be because of that color of our skin and the way we're dressed. Because all the other people that you didn't stop 
don't look like us and don't dress like us. So that would be the kind of conversation at that kind of level. Think of the headmistress of our school and, and then headmaster in the end. Um, different type of dynamic. I'm going to be here for a while. I, I need them to uh, to regard me not as a threat, but as, a, as an ambassador for the school. So I would push back in a different way sometimes. Or sometimes I just go along to get along. And because it was a, a, appropriate and you know i played a lot of sports so i was you know leading teams and captain of, of the you know the football and, and, and badminton team and, and cricket team so though different dynamic when you're dealing with people in that setting so I, yeah right you're right i learned a lot to deal with the power and the responsibility of having your own power and exerting that power which i i still carry to this day so what was it at 17 that made you write down that goal at 50 you are going to start your own business so, so i read a book that was pivotal i suppose which was um richard branson's biography and he, he was talking about virgin and and the virgin records uh, label that he set up and and richard branson eventually because he created island records and some of the um some of the bands that he was focused on were uh, were in the West Indies, so it, so that Island Records caught my attention, and and at the time I think he was involved in you know um, in our price and and you know Virgin Records and all of the the, the kind of music industry, which then branched out into um, into the airline. And but what what caught my attention at at that point um, was the fact that he created a brand that he could put on anything and the brand was synonymous with him and that for me became transformational because I realized that I could spend at the time I thought he was quite old obviously he wasn't old but but at the 17 year old me felt well oh, this guy's old so he must have worked really hard to get to that point but now he can put this brand on anything and it it's credible because it says virgin trains virgin records virgin and it's and he's in his adverts he's driving it he is synonymous with that so i felt like well that's my future that's where i need to be i need to spend the you know the point of time which i thought was forever you know i'm 17 but i and i'm just joining the rf myself because um, that was one of the edits of my dad uh you can do whatever you like when you left leave school he said um, and you can join any of the forces you want to, but you are joining one of them. And he told us that when we were, when we were, I think he was nine, nine or 10, because I, I think we, just, we were in Jamaica and I remember him telling us that's our future. So he says, you're not, and his view was that he's not having any of these big men in his house, eating his food and in burning his electricity with no purpose. So he gave us a purpose, which is you join one of the forces. So I was on the eve of just joining, uh, joining the RF, but I just, uh, I was, I, I think I was two months away. But I said, I'd made that commitment to myself. That isn't my destiny. My destiny is to set up on my own, set up my own business. And I want to create a brand. And this was before <laughs> all of this focus on social media and brand management. And, but I recognized that, it, that, that, was my that was the platform that you could create because you own that brand you can drive the power dynamics i talked about can be manipulated and maneuvered around 
your the credibility you you have within your own name, your own brand, your own um, credentials. So when I listen to you tell that story, in my head I go to you're about to step into this thing with your REF, but at the same time you have this dream and this desire to be able to create your own brand and to have your name on something and it sounds like you were able to hold both of those two things and recognize that you know what this will come like you said you said you do when you're 50 this will come later and i'm sure of that but for now this is one to step into the reason why that for me really stood out because i think we live in it no i think we live in a time where being able to have, I'm going to call it delayed gratification or to delay certain things is a lot harder. People want things now. The, the patience is gone, but you were just able to be like, well, I know what I want to step into down the line, but I need to do this right now. I'm happy just to part this and still make sure that I hit that ultimate goal. And I'm curious as I'm describing that, was it as easy as that for you or was there an inner struggle or turmoil that you had to go through if you remember it wasn't easy at all it was but what 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 i recognized by reading about people as i said we when you talk about so so think of the things we just talked about that were pivotal to me life is short these assassinations told me but the impact these people had malcolm x martin luther king in a short space of time so I, it was you had to have a horizon but you had to seize every day. So railing against the day, wasting time, you know, you know, getting upset about the, the injustice of a situation and losing your focus and your purpose, these people didn't do that. They had a driving, they had a North Star. That that purpose drove them and they, they seized the day. And I remember that movie, that I, the Robin Williams movie, um, that I, I sort of still repeat some of the bits of it today. That again, so it was a combination of a series of things, but the context was um, you have to have a purpose. Time is short, and 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 keep your eyes up, keep your head up. I talk to people about this all the time. Keep your head up, not down. Don't look at your feet. Look at the horizon, and have a north star. Where are you going? I, I, I when I mentor young people now, I said, what is it? What was the dream of the little boy you had? He must have had one. I had one, and I could tell them mine. You must have had a dream. There must have been something that you thought, that's what I'd love to do. Somewhere along the line, to, and this is back to your point, the journey, will, it won't be straight. I don't know any leader that you would have spoken to that said, oh, it was a straight line and I, did, I got to exactly where I wanted to go uh, in record time and there were no hurdles in the way because that's not how leadership works. But for me, it was about, um, my whole life was about overcoming obstacles and making sure that you could create lemonade out of those lemons so so for me every situation the air force was a learning journey i learned discipline i learned i and i took out of all of those lemons you know because there were lots of lemons i remember the first time i got off the train uh you know i'm pulling up into lincolnshire uh getting off at lincoln and the RAF bus is waiting and we're all i noticed all the people that were sitting around me all got off as well and were lining up and the guy's starting to shout at you, get on the bus, get on. And you realize you're not in Kansas anymore. This is, this is real. And you got to the station, to the, you know, took a, you know, 45 minute bus ride to Newark. And we ended up in, um, 
in the the RAF training base and uh, RAF Swinderby, and we ended up, and we did our got our kits and did our all our kind of transition onboarding activity for the for the rest of the day, and it was a reality check. But I realized then that I was equipped. My parents had equipped me with everything I needed to to know, to know the discipline, the ability to keep myself tidy. You know, I was neat. I had a neat mind. So all of those things uh, for the six weeks, I thrived in that. I hated most of it, but I thrived. You know, the 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 um, marathon runs with your kit on, all your backpack on, and all your boots and all your your equipment. Um, but you're still running the 22, 22 23 miles. Um, and you had, that was an obligatory part of the training. You had to be able to complete that in under a period, certain number of, of, of hours. Um, these were things that just separated you from the child that you were to the man you knew you had to be. So those, so those, the journey was prepared for me. I had a great foundation. Um, but no, it wasn't easy. It wasn't straight. I was doing, clearly I was doing, I was in the RF, but I, that was nowhere near what I was trying to do. So I did that time. I, I call it the woodshed. You've got to go and chop wood um, for a period of time. But I recognize that my, all my, my grandfather, my dad, all of my um, aunts and uncles had told me, you have to put the work in. There's no shortcuts. Shortcuts don't lead anywhere good. Usually they lead to dead ends, cul-de-sacs as we used to call it back in the day. So you hit, you think, oh, this is a good shortcut. Oh, there's the dead end. And you have to go all the way back. To me, that was a wasted journey. Didn't want to do that. How long were you in the area for? I did five years. So, yeah. So the, the, the you, you sign on for a period of time and you have a trade. But I did, I did five years. That was as long as I could, I could do it. My dad did 13 years, but for 13, 14 years. Did your brothers also end up going in there as well, or did they manage to do something different? <laughs> yeah, my older brother went into the army, and my younger brother had asthma, so he he didn't pass the physical. So, um, yeah, if I'd realised I could have coughed and sneak wheezed my way through one, I might have done that. I might, I might have tried that. I didn't realise that was an option. So, <laughs> so, yeah, I, I was the my brother and our older brother and I joined the forces. And after. Going through that, going through IF, coming out on the other side, and you start you start working and you start properly, probably like building a life and, and having a having a very successful career. From the work you did at I don't know BBC Council Council Council, council all those different space and places you were operating, all the way up to Cap Gemini before you started Tin, was that thought of the seventeen year old still there and present were you holding on to that or was it something that you had forgotten about because life had, had taken over yeah that's a good question i never forgot it but in, in fact there were points where i thought i've got to leave i've got to get out of these these places i i started off in in when i left the raf i i i wandered into a recruitment agency i remember it like yesterday uh, called brook street i was in putney uh staying with a friend of mine um in putney didn't realize putney was posh so I, I walked into the job center just over the bridge of Brook Street and um, and I spoke to this lady and they dismissed me immediately. They looked at me and going, yeah. The, the, and, and, but the manager um, 
heard me talking because I pushed back, of course, and I said, well, actually, I've seen an advert in the window. I think I'm absolutely perfect for I think it was an engineer at BT or something like that. And I said, you know, I've just come out of the RAF. I've got these qualifications. It's kind of what I did for a living. And I was explaining and breaking down what I did in the RAF. And the manager heard me and said, had you ever thought of being in sales? And I said, no. And she said, I think you'd be great uh, in, in this kind of setting. Um, uh, so come back and speak to me tomorrow. And so I did. And, and she offered me a role as a trainee um, and a uh, uh, recruitment agent. What were you doing in RAF that led to sales? I'm, I'm just... <laughs> <laughs> Well, you'll see this repeats in my... So the fact that I could explain, you know, what was quite a technical um, context of my role to the to the recruitment agent that was talking to me um, was what captured her attention. She was thinking, oh, actually, this, this guy, um, the way he's speaking, the way he's communicating made sense to her. So... Um, so that was that was the trigger, I think. And but I, I mean, that just like you know, my first day of the RF, they put me on the sales course. It was a week. Um, it was in Victoria, a very nice building, purpose-led. And I realized I did my homework and realized that, that, that actually the Brook Street training and that agency training was a really good training program. And so it taught me a lot. Um, it taught me how to construct a, a sale. Um, and uh, it was the, the, the strategy, the acronym they use, I still remember it now, was AIDA, which was attention, interest, desire, um, and then close the, close the, the last two were about closing the deal, account, uh, to close the account. So you, you create attention, interest, and desire for a product, and they taught you how to do that, and then you close it out. So that that training became the foundation i then moved i was there for seven months then moved them was headhunted by alfred marx which was the other recruitment agency and and that so the cycle began to the point where as you said i i ended up then being um i i moved to i got a job in the in the in the states um when i was 28 i was head uh, asked to apply for a role as an account manager in um boston um, for a company who worked in Boston, and they were uh, an advertising. Uh, they were they're a company called Micro Warehouse, but they were they owned um, uh, IT publications, m about 70, 17 of them around the world. But they sold to the to Europe, so they were looking for UK people who understood Europe and the UK to come to their office. And I was one of two people that was a, was applied. I remember going to the to the recruitment agency. Um, and there was a, a line around the block and people just, just sitting in the in the reception area. You had to queue to get in um, to get your turn. And so I was just skeptical. I thought, I'm never going to get this job. Um, but I did. And and then so they took me to the US. I did that for a while, came back. So I stayed in that sales world till I was 30, um, came back to the UK. And I got married um, where just at, at that point. Um, so my wife and I came back, we moved to Northampton, which is where she was from. And I, at, at, at that point, I kind of started realizing that sales is a young man's game. So I need to get into from the, the horizon from that point was getting into account management and getting into a more relationship type selling consulting, which I realized now was consulting. So it's a consultative sale. So I, I then moved into a consulting role restarted my te technical background, did a refresher course, got a job at the BBC, and 
um, started in the call center in the BBC. They had no idea. They obviously hadn't looked at my CV. So I started making suggestions and having conversations with people, which they realized, who is this guy? And then they looked at my CV and went, oh. Uh, and so, you know, I got to a director level when before I joined the BBC. So I they realized I knew what I was doing and knew what I was talking about. So I was offered some senior roles at the BBC and that progressed. I was there for, for uh, five or six years. Um, and at that point, with the BBC as a platform, I started looking at different opportunities. I, I wanted to stay there, but they just wouldn't pay enough. And the culture was, it was, there was a lot of black people there. So it was a very, you know, very diverse um, culture, but there were challenges and, and those challenges are playing out now. You can see the mass exodus of people, but we predicted that was going to happen because they were, they just suppressed a lot of the black people. They were you watched people doing the same job as you getting paid twice as much money and they just wouldn't, that, that was the embedded in their culture. So I decided I had to leave. I had just had a child, um, my first, um, second child. Um, so we needed the money and I had to get more money. So I, I took the job at Kent County Council because that was the kind of, because it's a similar culture, the BBC to local government or, or um, regional government was the obvious leap. And so that was, I learned about governance and I learned about being in a government um, setting. Um, and I then moved into uh, Capgemini from, from that point because I understood local government. So I was a public sector specialist. Um, so hopefully you can see the steps that Tana took me, sales to consulting, to, um, to, to technical consulting, which led me to Capgemini. You also see a thread from the younger version of you who was curious, who knew how to ask questions, who knew how to navigate power dynamics, who knew how to be able to respond based on um, different references that you had, how you you took that skill and were able to like, push back on that woman and, and talk about your role and turn that skill set into sales and consultancy kind of role but also mixed with someone who sounds very much like you you also backed yourself because I know there I, I can definitely relate I remember when our second child I'd be like we need to get some more money and where I was they weren't going to pay me more and the option was like okay, I can go somewhere else it is risky at that point in time you might lose your pension blah 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 I was like yeah but I need to back myself when I left that's something that not everyone is always willing to do there are times people will moan and complain like, oh my gosh there's no money here but I'm going to stay stuck or there are people who are like okay I really need to do something let me move and you did that so that mixture of you navigating plus you having that faith and confidence in yourself sounds very much like it's something that you've just rolled with all the way throughout as well yeah so I think and I haven't mentioned confidence uh, as part of my foundation but but that self-confidence grew um that ability to join, to, to always be the new kid in the class. Yes, I had my brothers, but they weren't in the same class as me. I said they were two years, a year and a half difference. So I was always in a different year. So it, so so I was, I'd go to these different places and we'd land in these different countries. And so I, I, I used to, I describe it now as being portable. So you have to be portable. You have to bring your confidence and your capability has to travel with you. you, you it can't be from your friends or from the the fact that you're because that is why people stay 
the familiarity, the, the, the fact that they work for this company or that company um, is their brand. So, so if you leave that company, you don't, you're not portable because you can't carry that brand with you. You're now just you. And so my, my point about that, you know, you are your brand. I realized that every opportunity I had had to build credentials. And I, I use, I talk about this um, in terms of career management. I, I, any interview I went to, it was a 360 degree interview. I was interviewing them. I did my homework on them and they were going to be, had to convince me that their opportunity was the one I should take because I always had more than one. And so, and I let them know that. So, and, and they would, every time they would say to me, so we'll let you know, Alex. And I said, I'll let you know. So I'm, I have these other options. So, you know, I'm not sure this is the right opportunity for me. And then they, you know, that would lead them into trying to convince you to, but actually this was the right opportunity because they were about, well, why wouldn't you want to come and work for us? We're, we're great. We're, we're Canon. We're, <laughs> we're Accenture. We're, you know, and I'd be saying, well, you know, I'm looking for something specific and something. And of course that, again, that's the power dynamic. That's the management of power. Because of course they believe that they have all the power because they're selecting you. And I'm saying, if I don't decide to work for you, then you don't have the power over me. So I get to choose my next step. But to your point, the confidence to say, actually, this is not the right environment for me. For whatever reason, it could be money. It could be that you have a, a manager that doesn't believe in you, that's suppressing you, that doesn't, you don't, you're, you don't, you've done the work but you're not getting the opportunity to show showcase that work. People are taking credit for your ideas, which happens a lot. Um, so you're being, you know, they're, they're taking all your ideas, but somebody else is getting the credit for it. Your manager, some, you know, a colleague. These are, these are my kind of, I, I took call it the death by a thousand cuts. You know, this is what really saps the energy out of you. So I cannot create, put myself in that negative situation and stay there because you'll end up being a husk of a person. So so for me, it was, you know, I wanted to be my authentic self, but I, I understood this was a, um, this was a process. You, you, you couldn't, you had to pick your battles and you had to pick the points when you could push back. You can't do that all the time. And sometimes you have to go along to get along. If you haven't already, can please follow the podcast. It really helps us grow and it tells the apps that it's a podcast worth listening to. Which the fact that you're listening to means that it is and other people need to know about it. In Apple Podcasts, if you click the three dots in the top right of your app, look for the follow button and click on it. And in Spotify, the follow button should be just below the show's artwork. Now let's get back into today's episode. And you did that. You're in a great position massive company kept Gemini. Now you've got a family, a couple of kids, lots of responsibilities. And then you are coming up to your 50th birthday mm-hmm. and you decide to walk away from all of that and to start Tim. Like how, how was that process internally for you as well as externally with I don't know, family, friends, work? Um, this is someone saying it from someone when I walked away, I got cussed out by everyone apart from my family were good. Yeah. <laughs> Externally, I got cussed out by a lot of people like, what are you doing? Oh, you've got this amazing career. What are you doing? So I know it was very hard and very painful, but I had my faith in my wife with me. So I was good. 
I'm curious, I was curious to learn for someone like you in that position, what was that journey like being able to like, I said I was going to do this when I was 17, I'm turning 50. Were you already thinking about it and planning about it or was it when you turned 49 and really, really hit you that this is what you were really going to do? As I said, it was, it never left me. I was always entrepreneurial, let's call it that, rather than entrepreneurial. So I was always somebody that take a concept and, and my view was all I was doing between 17 and 50 was um, using other people's money to test drive my ideas and my concepts and learn how to, how to land a concept, get it funded and then grow it. But I, I didn't need to use my own money. I couldn't use the company's money to do that and all the company's resources. And I was very good at leveraging those resources. Um, so as I approach, you know, that my 49th birthday, there were some serious significant things that happened. And you'll, you've recognized that already. There were trick, there's triggers to these things. Life, life doesn't stand still. Life, you know, you got children, you got the, the, and mine was my dad died. So my dad died at the point, that point, um, just before, so a year or so before. And that made me, I realized um, at that point that that was going to be a massive change in my future because my dad was always my North Star. He always, if I ever drifted off my my purpose or my direction, he would always be able to yank me back and say, hold on a minute. Um, so he would he would be the one that would challenge me, that would ask me questions. Because as you said, I was successful. So I was around a lot of people that would just kind of accept what I said as just, just fact, because I, I sounded like I knew what I was saying. And most of the time I did know what I was saying, but still I'm like everybody else. I'm navigating and trying things and taking risks. And I am a risk taker, but, but calculated risks. So, so, um, so without my dad, who was my biggest supporter, I didn't realize it when I was younger. I, I always see, saw him as my biggest barrier to, to happiness, but actually all he was doing was guiding me. I learned a lot from, from that relationship and, and, my and the way my dad and I um, uh, navigated our lives. And so for me, him passing again reminded me that life is short. And he was 69, very young, for, you know, uh, died of a, of a stroke and a heart attack. So, um, Yes, so that 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 changed my life. It meant I had to look at my where I was. What am I doing? You know, if I died today, you know, I said I talked to my children in those terms. If I died today, I would I be happy? Would I be content? Would I have left them a legacy that I feel that they could they could repurpose and use to inspire them going forward? My dad had done that, but he'd done it in a in a way that wasn't intentional, in my opinion. And he always regarded himself as someone who wasn't um, a role model, wasn't someone who was inspirational. Although he was for me, no matter how I talked to him, he couldn't, he wouldn't believe that. Um, so I wanted to be more intentional about that because it's going to happen. I knew it was going to happen. It's inevitable. Death, taxes, whatever they're talking about. So for me, it's how you decide that's going to happen, with whatever control you have over it and I'm very I'm not a religious person I'm very spiritual I grew up in in a religious household but I'm more spiritual I embrace a lot more um a lot of um religions I think are opposing or look opposed in terms of their foundational aspirations um so you know Judaism and and um um the Muslim faith and and you know the 
the kind of Hindu faith uh, the, and, and Catholic faith. They're, they're all variations on a theme, but a lot of them are telling you things that are diametrically opposed. And so, but I embrace those things. Those are, those things are knowledge um, are driven from a foundation, a good foundation in most regards. They they get splintered into into negative um, places, uh, and obviously that's playing out right now. So uh, we won't, won't touch on that uh, really. But but so the reality for me was that I had to I had to do something that made meant I was going to be comfortable if my time came that I had done my bit and so I hadn't done I felt 50 was the right age I was as I was approaching it it was because I'd had the experience I had the gravitas you're a young man Sophie, so I could imagine the people were thinking well you're crazy to 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 leave a you know a stable a stable role I was there was less pushback for me because um you know I, I had done the work and people had seen me be successful I was on you know, my six-figure salary I was doing really well as you said my pension was I could see my pension blinking in the in the background I used to look at it and think and I had shares in the company and I'm thinking oh I'm set up you know I owned a, a number of houses at the time I was I was in a good place I'd built the foundation but actually I realized that that foundation was also useful for me to take this risk now um I, I all of that was still useful now I could I could have the confidence to say, you know, I have this found, I built this foundation, I built this safety net for myself, um, let, let's do it now. And so what I didn't know was what I was going to do. And I was, I accepted a secondment to um, Business in the Community, which was one of um, King Charles, Prince Charles at the time, one of his charities. Um, the Prince's Trust is the is is one of them, but the business in the community was the business, the responsible business version of that. And the chairman of Cap Gemini, chairwoman um, Christine Hodgson, um, had asked for volunteers who would like to be seconded to that organisation to look at a program called Business Connectors, which was being dropped into communities. You got to choose which community, but any disadvantaged place that you could go in and and understand. How could business be more responsible and help that 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 location to thrive? Um, and you know, pick a target and, and see what you can do. For me, I picked Lambeth because I grew up in Lambeth. So uh, I had we had two offices up in in the in about you know one in Lambeth and one just up the road. So so I could use leverage the resources in the office, and and I spent I spent probably the first months of that twelve months just wandering around, reacquainting myself, you know, with with the location in you know and just talking to people I, I and i would say they would ask me i where what have you done this week alex and i said i just walked and walked around and talked to people so i'd walk up Ephra road i'd walk up <laughs> walk up the front line and talk to you know where all the used to be where all the drug dealers were and just talk to people and see what was going on and i learned three things at that point that young people had nowhere to go they were closing down the parks no youth centers my my childhood all the things that were there in my child weren't there so young people were, were angry they were upset they were there was nothing for them their their horizon was just they were looking down at their feet and life was 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 something they could just throw away because it didn't matter they were, they didn't have any dreams or aspirations um a lot of the time or their aspirations they believed weren't going to happen I talked to the shopkeepers. They were scared of the young people. If you walked in there with a hoodie, they were just terrified of them. So they were trying to get rid of them. They weren't welcoming. They weren't. They just regarded them as somebody were going to steal from them. So I realized there was this mismatch of these these views, 
and then I obviously started meeting with the 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 power. So you know, I'd go and see the police service, uh, and they were part of a program that we were on. So I knew the chief constable um, in of Lambeth, because we were on a panel together. Um, managed to meet the head of DWP um, at the time, the Department of Work and Pensions, who ran all the job centres. So in Brixton, there's about you know 40 job centres within a radius of 10 miles in Elephant Castle, you know, Norbury, Streatham, all these different places, Clapham. So, so the power dynamics came to bear. So that 12 months gave me an indication of what I could do, what I needed to change, which was the, the future and the aspiration of people who are, who have, their voices are just not heard. They were just, uh, and I remember learning that you were branded a long-term unemployed if you were unemployed for six months. That blew my mind. How, how is that even possible? If you're unemployed for six months, you're regarded as long-term unemployed, so you're you're probably not going to be working for two to five years. And so you're in the initial, all the investment in you was geared for six months. Once you dropped off the six months, you were, you basically would go into a job center, see someone for two minutes. Of course, you had to get through the 16 G4S guards that were in the job center in Brixton. And um, of course, they would cost you like you were going into prison. And I remember walking into the, the job center for the first time in my suit and, my, and I worked for Capgemini and they kept asking me, can I help you, sir? And I'm like, nope. And I just walked by them because I'm just thinking, yeah, okay. Yeah. I, I, and say, can I help you? Can I help you? No, you can't. No, you can't. I know where I'm going. And eventually you got to the one that was policing the the, the manager's area, which is where I was going. And I, he said, um, have you got your identification? I said, no, I'm here to see the manager. And she saw me and she just waved me over. And I remember looking at the guy and just saying, mm-hmm. But I realized if I was unemployed, they would that would have been a gauntlet of fire. Yeah, very intimidating as well. You're already down, feeling a, feeling a way about it, and you're coming to that kind of environment. That doesn't help you to get into the right mindset or encourage you to want to go there in the first place. Do you want to seek a loan in the first place? 100%. So so that became the you know, that long-term unemployed group became my focus. And I set up a program um, with the job center they asked me, you know, said they walked me upstairs. The manager walked me upstairs, said um, I'd done a program called the Mentoring Circle. So I'd taken about 10 young people and put them through a process that we just made up. So I, I got a few grads and, and took them through CV, a CV clinic, started working with them on their, you know, what was their story in an interview. You know, they, they showed me their CV and they, I said, what job are you applying for? They told me how they're applying for. They sounded like robots. So I would tell them, this is what you sound like to me. I said, um, but supposing this was a job for something you loved, uh, tell me something you love. And I say to them, okay, you're applying for a job as head of Nike um, and you love sports. Apply for that job. And they they would then be excited. I'm, I could do this and I love this and I can. And I, and I said, right, that's how you need to sound. You need to sound like you're excited. You know what you're doing. Because now I want to hire you. I don't even know if I want to hire you for the job that I that you were applying for. I might want to hire you for a different job because you sound like someone that we want to have in our company. And I, it was just having that conversation, that mindset shift, um, that that realized I could unlock some of these people. So it gave me the confidence to try. And so when they asked me, they they asked, said, showed me a space and said, "Would you, you know, if we set you up here and gave it to you for free, could you 
and helped you to get some funding. Could you do do what you did then? And I said, yeah. Uh, and I did that while I was still at Capgemini. Um, they, the one year finished, I launched it. The program was called DigiSheds, um, a digital shed. So it was just two uh, uh, young people that I was working with. They said, um, so we. I, I was told I need to use, it has to be something digital because we're a technology company. So it had to be digital, but we need to fix things. So they said, oh, digi, digital shed. It's a digital <laughs> To me, it made absolute sense. And and tin came from the same conversation. So Alex, what are you? So I said, you know, when I went back, I'm, I need to. I want to leave. Really, I want. I want to do this. This is what I want to do. And we worked out. It took me a few months to work out how I was going to shape it. Had to be a consulting business because that's what I was good at. That's what I did. Um, but consulting on what? And I said, well, I want to be thinking about innovation all day. I said, that's what I want to be doing. And they said, well, so think innovation. We could call that Tim. And I said, oh, I like that. And then they said, so um, what is it going to be? What kind of business is it going to be? So I said, it's going to be a smart business that's looking at, um, so looking at specific, measurable, achievable, realistic goals. Smart um, smart social. It's a social business, but it's going to be a smart social business. So the first iteration was called Tim Smart Social. <laughs> and somebody, I said to someone, oh, just... Just go and register that. I thought they were just going to register Tin, but they registered Tin Smart Social. So I ended up having to explain every time what does that mean. So uh, the next iteration was um, was where we took DigiSheds and some of the, the the products and services that we created. So we created an agency called Own Label Creative, which was hiring people that we were training. So we realized if we could just give them their first job, and give them the confidence to know that they got a job, that actually we should be not just training them, but then hiring some of them to then show help them to get the confidence. And then I realized that entrepreneurship was probably a really good opportunity for them because it worked for me. And so we started giving them, training them to not just be waiting for a job, but actually be, what ideas do you have? And then helping them to shape those ideas into a proposition and then something that they could sell. And that became another program which so in my uh discussions with people and deciding um after covid so covid came and i you know i was doing very well and we were we were involved in all these different things working with the police working with you know all all sorts of different organizations i started to then realize that actually the thing i love doing the thing i'm really good at and passionate about myself because i kept taking my own advice was about helping people to understand digital innovation, but but with a view to becoming an entrepreneur, because I felt that entrepreneurship was the future for our culture, because that gave us the opportunity to own, to drive, to own the power dynamic, to, to have more power in the conversation. If you have a business, because this is what Richard Branson taught me all those years ago, it meant he met the prime minister. You were a viable, valuable commodity because you were a business owner. Changed it completely. If you're working for someone, you just work for the person who runs that business. The person who owns that business has the power. And I said, well, so it, even if you start a small business and you're just the CEO, just calling yourself the CEO changes the conversation because now you're a CEO and founder of a business. And so that becomes your brand. And your brand is power. Because nobody can take that away from you. 
and as you can imagine, these conversations um, just escalated. And, and so I started looking at venture building. How do you become a venture builder? How do you build ventures that disrupt solutions? So I took the things I'd built and packaged them as propositions that I still sell. So I still sell DigiShed as a training program. I still sell um, the the agency, the marketing agency element. We still hire people. We still because that because we use them because that's how I run my business. So that's what we built. We built support services that I needed, and then hired people that we trained to run them. And so, uh, and they were anchored in people who knew what they were doing, like me. So you had people who could train these people and give them advice, and that became a magnet for other social entrepreneurs. So I have now a cluster of social entrepreneurs and we all support each other. We mentor each other's people. We coach each other's people. We support each other. So we're not, because it's a lonely world being an entrepreneur. It very well is. Yeah, so so Tin Ventures was born out of just my, my need to keep being focused, but actually build a supportive ecosystem around my, not just myself, but all the other entrepreneurs. Many of them look like me, so, you know, black and brown white women and men um, who were, some of them are very, very successful, you know, ultra successful. So people like Byron Dixon, who I know very well, who's, you know, the face of the um, Department of Business and Trades export um, activity, because he's, he's, you know, he's doing brilliantly in his space. Um, you've got people that are social entrepreneurs. There's a guy I work with a lot called Kevin Davis, who has built um, he's built a social enterprise ecosystem in Walsall, um, anchored around schools. So he, he is now creating a nine-school multi-academy trust, but he built the first school, the first school for, um, called a, a, a um, studio school, and then built a ladder school for people who were children who were in alternative provision. And, and those schools then grew into more another school, and, and then he, he became a, tr a multi-academy trust, and he's the chair of that trust now. So he's now got nine schools. But that that though that knowledge-intensive um, area is now in a KIBS, what is which is a knowledge-intensive business support um, uh, area, which you can now because you've got the schools, you can now create an anchor for the community that that transports people into opportunity. So he has a, the ladder program, which is an apprenticeship program, and so on and so on and so on. He's engaging with business, um, businesses who then hire these people, and we're now building an entrepreneurship pathway. So, so anyway, um, these are the kind of um, aspirational entrepreneurs that I'm working with now, and entrepreneurs, people who are C level in in big companies. Um, so, so that's that's what I do every day now. Very inspiring endeavor to see how. You utilize the skill set that you have to start to build out these programs to make an impact, which then also have made an impact, not just the wider community, have also been able to support you, what you do. But also one of the things that you said, which really stood out to me was even the multiple iterations of your business, being able to, I think a lot of times we go into business and we just start to do and do and do and do. And we never quite slow down, ask myself like, am I actually doing what I set out to do? Am I doing something that I actually fully enjoy? Am I utilizing the the four like things that make me kind of come alive? And it's very important to ask those questions. Like you said, business can be very, very hard. It can be very, very lonely. 
but you've been able to reset and ask yourself those questions ensures that you can have something that you are proud of, something that is your legacy. And you were able to do that when this third iteration, build out this ecosystem, build out a community, support other people. And that, that, that piece for me really just started to go right around in my mind around like, you had a goal at 17, you pivoted at 50, over the last 10 years, you've been able to influence so many very people. And you said it before, like your dad had the legacy, but you felt it wasn't impactful. It wasn't intentional. You wanted yours to be intentional and you have done that. When you now look back at you being able to achieve that over the last 10 years, and you start to look forward, which I know is very important to you, what is it that you actually want to do? Like, is there anything else left where you're thinking there's still bits and pieces of stuff I want to, I want to achieve? while I'm still here at Earth. Yes, there are. Um, and we change with the times. So these the times now, for me, as I said, I think the legacy my generation has left for my children, and I, and I don't know how old your children are, but my youngest child now is, eight, is 18, my son. Um, so I have four other children who are, you know, upwards of, 18 to 20 my daughter and then then uh to three more two more girls uh 34 and and 38 and so um so that spread think of that spread of children and i now have four grandchildren so uh, and they're all girls so the world that they exist in for me as i said there's no clarity on purpose now so their 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 challenges are challenges i don't recognize they're not the same as mine. So so trying to give advice as a parent, you're, you're just throwing darts in the in the wind because you're just kind of, you don't know if they're going to hit the mark. So I'm trying to use the same solutions I used in my young my life as I grew up, but their problems are social media, you know, this the sense of where is their identity coming from when it's manipulated constantly by media and the power dynamics that that everywhere now so at least mine were face-to-face and physical sometimes on the phone but but now the power is being exerted exerted from these corporations that hold their data that tell them that stream video at them because of their likes and dislikes that they have no idea that, that they're being manipulated i can see it but you can't tell these young people that they're being manipulated because of course they don't believe you because they've grown up that this is just the world as it is. What I have done with my children is predominantly is make them travel. So I they spent their formative years in m- traveling to multiple countries. So my children have been to the Grand Canyon and seen it. Have have been in you know tra- they they've been in hotels and on planes their whole life. So they know when I say to them, then you're never stuck. So whatever's going on here, you could go anywhere. And Facebook has connected them with all of the people I know around the world, or my family, all the different people. Some of them reach out to them and they say, my, you know, Dad, why is this person emailing me that I don't even know from South Africa? And I'm saying, because that is somebody I know and they know you. You know, so, so oh, you did you met them when you were little or you didn't remember. But you have people all over the world that are wishing you well. That you can, if you get stuck. So I am trying to say to say to the to young people, not just my children, but other young people, 
the world is literally your oyster. But what are you gonna what is gonna are you gonna put into it? What is the opportunity? And where I see the there's still a lot of work to do is we need to own more roads. We don't own the road. We pay the toll. And it, and there are highwaymen everywhere. And I'm if you take that analogy of, of the highway, the toll road, and the person that effectively robs you on the toll road when you're unsuspecting, um, that is, for me, what life feels like right now. So I don't own the road, so I don't own the energy company. I don't own the the technology company. I don't own the you know, any utilities, any of the local government. But I am being asked to pay for these things. And then every now and again, there's a tax that comes up that I didn't know about. There's a there's a toll or there's a high. Someone's robbing me of more money. And so this cluster of people of situations of systems and power dynamics that I don't control are constantly making sure I can't feel like I'm succeeding, getting in the way. So we need to start owning utility companies. We need to start owning. So we need to build. And what's happening right now, given the state of the world, if you look at the world, the economic picture, you can start with renewable energy. You can start your own energy company today. That's fact. So in Jamaica, for instance, there is a there was a single supplier, single source agreement with a supplier, the Jamaica Public Services. That agreement is coming to an end in two years' time. They're now they want to they the policy of that government is to go to fifty percent renewable energy. If you read the policy, you'll see it. That's what the Prime Minister has stated by 2030 or something, 2040. So to get to 50%, and it's 98% carbon intensive with a single supply, it's been that way for 100 years. So they are now asking for people who, who would like to be become an energy supplier to the government. So you can set up an energy company in Jamaica if you wanted to. And of course, I joined the call just to see who was on those calls and it's the usual suspects the edfs of the world that are looking sending people and banks that are sending people because they know the process they could buy the land they go and put some suppliers on there but they own the road so i'm saying we could own the road because we own land in those countries if you you can do exactly the same in the uk you could, we could get together now, buy some land, set up a wind farm, set up any kind of renewable energy source, and the grid, the national grid, would pay you for that energy. If you have your energy source and you built homes, affordable homes, and now we can build homes because those homes need to be net zero. If those homes are net zero compliant, or you retrofit homes that are existing. There is trillions of money, pounds and euros of money that can fund that because clearly that's what we need to do because that's the future. So we are in an, op an age of opportunity if only you understand how to, how to create and leverage that opportunity. And we, I want more people, and it's now my mission to get more people who are understanding that creating a digital solution that is helping to achieve net zero, creating green solutions that achieve the transition to net zero, and creating entrepreneurship models 
and, 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 and economic growth models that hire people at scale is where the future is. The bit that we must own is the investment piece. And that's where the missing link is. We've got lots of entrepreneurs, but the investment landscape, and I'm, I'm tired of hearing about 2% investment yeah, or 1%. I, I, honestly, I, that frustrates the life of me every single time that comes up around, around that piece around. Yeah. 2%, 0.4%, so all that kind of stuff. Yeah, nonsense. So women, same thing. So it's worse if you're a black woman. So you, you're like a unicorn, so, but in the reverse version of that. So my point is we have to own the road there too. We, we have to say, let's start pooling, uh, creating family offices like these other entities, these other groups, other cultures. Pull our money together, create investment vehicles, trust in ourselves and invest in our own businesses. And that's what I've been doing for nine years in a small way. So I'm micro investing. So I create some money and I put 500 pounds in this guy's business or, you know, a thousand pounds or 9,000 pounds in something and just help them. Not with any view of any return. For me, it's just, I've just given that money. But it's this point that you made right at the beginning. I'm sowing the seeds. If that business succeeds that and that person hires 10 people, then I've, I've provided uh, that family, his family, and also these other 10 people, I've made an impact on those 11 people. If I can do that in lots of different places in small ways, then I that's my legacy. And so that will keep me going for the rest of my life because it's never going to end. But we, we must own the road. So it's a very powerful statement that one that I 100% stand behind. I agree with you. We need to, ownership is the key because if you don't own it, you're always going to be under the, the rule of someone else who can choose things and what they generally tend to choose is not necessarily good for us and for our people. So being able to actually own that and actually come together, I mean, you described that around, around being able to work in a community and how, how powerful that is. But work together, learning from each other. There's something beautiful about that. Like it's it's such a missing piece that even when I think about myself way back in day, and I hear some of the stories from my parents, I'm sure you were around those those days as well. Yes. The stent the, the the community aspect that existed was really, really powerful. So when you had the things of like the susus and and all those different elements where it was just people coming, coming together and working together to be able to build and create something. That's how real true community is is formed. That's how you begin to own your road. So being able to actually do more of that going forward within the next generation, 100% agree it's, it's important. Yeah, and we have to be intentional about it. It's not going to be given to us, just like my career. My career wasn't given to me, but you have to navigate the power dynamics. You have to understand, and there's lots of insight to be gained from each other. You know, my conversation just now with you has surfaced a lot of things that I, you know, I'm there. Yeah, I couldn't stop to scribble them down, but yeah, but I, you know, I'm, it's surfacing things that I'm locking in my brain. That actually, I realize I'm saying out loud, and you're saying things that I'm thinking. No, that's a new piece of of insight that I need to to, to leverage and, and work with. So you're right. This collective, um, we're forming a black business collective at the moment as a model in in the West Midlands in Birmingham, um, which is bringing all these people together. Uh, and trying to you create that as a module that can be funded, and and so the point is, 
you always you always get to the point where funding becomes a problem the challenge the investment becomes the challenge and i'm saying we need to be get better and better because the money is there you just need to know how to unlock it oh i said at the start this is going to be a very powerful conversation it has been and um i love the way that it's it's gone and where we've kind of landed um as we kind of come towards the end i guess my last question for you um is how do you define leadership mm. Mm. I kind of knew I knew you were going to ask me that. Obviously, yeah. I know that's the crux. Of it. So, it's, that's I. I think you'll get. You'll probably have an anticipation of how I'm going to answer. I, I think leadership is, and let me just differentiate between leadership and and what what in a in a uh, an enterprise or corporate setting, which is defined based on management um you know being a worker being a manager being a you know and, and being a leader Th those are kind of um st structures if you like uh, that you climb into so you're, you're you're effectively go that's your career that's how you mark career progression so most people view leadership as that progression of capability or or capacity to lead so you you do some work you're very you're pretty good at it you then become a manager of people. You manage a management and leadership is completely different things. Managing an operation is not the same as leadership. So, and then lead you become a leader because you get to the C-suite, you get to this place. So, so it's like this growth. I don't believe that at all. My view of leadership is is about being the kind of person that can convene, that can create capacity, and enable capability. So convening, creating capacity, and then leveraging capability. And what that means for me, those three C's are about being able to bring people together, recognizing and understanding and spending the time to understand their skills and their capabilities. Because their capabilities is not the exams they passed or the professional qualifications they have. The capability is the deeper person, their, their spirit, their motivation, what drives them, what do they love? What's the power of that person? Because everybody has their superpower. You've talked about it. So I bank that in my head, in my database. Your superpower is convening and asking questions and giving people the space and a platform to unload and unlock themselves. But that is a powerful thing especially now so the can and then if you can convene those people uh, and help them to build the capacity and the capacity bit is about being able to not just take on your your job is it being able to to take on help to build an organization that can take on any amount of work so the capacity is super important because I know leaders who just are pretty good in a space. They can they can leverage their teams, but they their capacity stays the same. They are always going to be able to just do three things every year. They can't do ten things. They can do three things. They can work on three projects at a time. To build capacity is either you expand people's mindset and people's view of what's what is the different zones they have. So everybody's afraid of the panic zone. Everybody's in wants to be in their comfort zone, and then you have this the the the, the other zone I'm going to call the the negative zone. Let's call it that. 
but most people want to be in their comfort zone. I, as a leader, pull people towards their panic zone and let them realize that they don't need to be afraid because that op there's opportunity in there for growth. So that builds extra capacity. So now their comfort zone is expanded. And so now they're more comfortable in places. And look at elite sports people. That's what they've done their entire life. They've taken things that we think are impossible and made them possible. And now we believe they're possible. So I, you know, I'm looking at someone like Jurgen Klopp. I'm a Liverpool supporter. I'm going to say that now. All the boos that are going to happen, I don't, I don't care. But you know, when you track that guy, what, what that person, that man has done as a, as a person, he's quite, quite correct. He hasn't done it on his own, but he has been the leader that's triggered the capacity for that that group of players and that organization to believe. He said he turned them from into believers, and that's leadership. It's to turn people into believers that they can do things that they didn't believe they could do. But you have to bring them together. The convening is super important. I remember him, you know, just listening to him talk about the fact that he took them all to Dubai, he took them all to a place and helped to convene everybody around them. He got motivational speakers, he got into their minds, he got them to believe in each other, rely on each other, took them out of their normal day-to-day. -day. So you must convene and understand their skills. So he spent time with them, he watched them on tape, he knew their capability almost better than they did. And then he helped them to build the capacity to overcome a Manchester City, overcome all the negativity, all of the things that they're, they're tired, they think they're, they're beaten, they're finished. And then they come back. Now that capacity to do that, to believe in that is leadership. When you talk about it, when you, when you ask a question and you get an answer, you just need to sit with it. That's what I need to do. <laughs> <laughs> I need to sort of that one because the way you have broken that down and actually separated it just literally broken into little pieces it's one that my mind is kind of sitting racing with because it's not just you talked about just not about leadership for the individual but it's also leadership and the impact and influence you can have on other people 100 percent. and that is that is that duality effectively um which i love when it's like how you're leading yourself or how you also lead on people and those around you and how those two kind of go hand in hand and I think quite often you can either say it's one or the other one when actually the true leadership is both. You never do anything separately. So thank you for that. Thank you for this conversation. Thank you for sharing your journey and, and the work you're doing as well. Um, we talked about the impact you are making from your creating days to where you're at now and what you're doing. And there's so many people who can attest to being able to learn and be empowered um, through your organization and how you've actually given them a voice. Even that turning, there's the phrase you said earlier on, which for me, when you said like, rather than just, oh, how do you get a job? It's like, no, how do you actually create one for yourself? How do you step into entrepreneurship and kind of take hold? For me, it's like taking hold and getting your power back because now you're not waiting for someone else you're the one who recognizes you're in full control of your life rather than leaning into other people. So step into that. And that's something that you've been able to do with so many people over the years by you stepping into your dream. 
that you had from 17. So thank you very much for sharing your journey, Alex. It has been an absolute pleasure. I know so many people are going to learn from this. Thank you, Sophie. This platform, I mean, I'm going to reflect it back to you. I think what you've created, the way you do what you do is inspirational on its own. I think it's truly powerful. Uh, and I, I know in the moment you're thinking, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a conversation. But think of the resonance, think of the ripple effect of these conversations. Not, not just for me, because for me, this is part of my legacy to have, to be able to, for my children and grandchildren or any future person, as you said, to listen to this when I'm gone is such a, but so you are capturing people's essence, which is powerful. Thank you. Saying that, I've never thought about that before. So please learn even more. So thank you very much for that. Thank you. Thank you. This is Everyday Leadership. We will see you all next week. While you're still recovering from that amazing conversation, let me give you a quick preview of what we got coming up next week. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss out. Because what you're talking about there is really just the humanity of everybody. It doesn't matter what level they're at, you know, it doesn't matter how senior they are, they're still human. And those, you know, one of the things I always say is you've got to really think about those people that are sitting around the board table what's their agenda you know so if you're trying to influence them what's their agenda you know what concerns have they got um a lot of them just are trying to survive in the boardroom you know their peers have got the knives out for them uh or they just they want to support people that are going to make them look good you know there's all sorts of things and it's the more you can understand the humanity i think like you say the more you can understand the humanity of the people in the boardroom and connect with them on a human level, the better off you will be.